God of hosts, your blessed saints who are now at rest overcame the world by your strength. So strengthen us to follow in their steps and after this life partake with them in your glory. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. There, are, there is a popular kind of story known as the rags to riches story. It's where you have your hero starts off in desperation and then um, through his own efforts becomes rich. And that's the hero because he was able to go from rags to riches. But, but there's a story you won't ever see. And that's the reverse is where you have a hero go from riches to rags voluntarily. That usually in storytelling methods of our culture is a non-hero. That's a loser. His story doesn't end well. But in Matthew 19, we have a rich young man who needs to go from the riches to rags story. But instead, he thinks that he's already accomplished all because he's gone from rags to riches. But this is what Jesus would say. This is what Jesus would say to our culture, to us. This is what he sees as a hero as someone who goes the opposite way from riches to rags. So this is Matthew 19, verse 16. Behold, a man came up to Jesus saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. The rich young man said to Jesus, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In essence, the Ten Commandments plus the love your neighbor. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. He asked, what do I still lack? Jesus' answer in essence, in essence is, you lack lack. You lack lack. Or another way to put it is, it's not that you haven't kept enough commandments, is that you have kept too many possessions. He was owned by what he owns. This is not to say that we should now leave and say, okay, you must literally get rid of everything you own. Um, we are not saved by doing such. However, we must get rid of those things that we can't or don't actually want to get rid of. The things that have a hold on us, we must let go because Christ can't have a hold on us when a thing, a created object has a hold on us. That's what Jesus is saying. It's a test to the young rich man. Does your wealth hold you? Let me test you. Give it all up. It holds him. He cannot give it up. We must ask before we go in tonight, what is holding us? What owns us? 
Where are we burdened? If we're to run this race with endurance so that we may inherit our glory with the saints who have inherited it ahead of us, if we are to run this race with endurance, we must take seriously the idea that things can hold us down and exhaust us. So tonight, we're going to meet someone who's possibly the most popular saint in all of the Western world. (laughs) That's not my claim. That's a biographer's claim. And it's also a claim because so many people know his name, even though he's not on our civil calendar. So no, it's not St. Patrick. Uh, His life is a riches to rags story. His voluntary poverty is a huge condemnation over the gross materialism of our society. And here's one story from his life that encapsulates what he's about. One day, a disciple, a follower, one of his brothers, uh, had come to him um, rejoicing over the fact that he had received a gold coin. And this saint told him to put it between his teeth and then to go bury it in manure, for that is where gold belongs. I don't know if the young man did it or not. The saint we're talking about is St. Francis of Assisi. And tonight, we're going to learn how to travel light with St. Francis of Assisi, so that we do not run with too much burden and weight in this life. What the young rich ruler could not do in Jesus' encounter with him in Matthew 19, St. Francis of Assisi did do. And it's cool that sometimes in the history of the church, God has given us examples of those who do what some in the Bible could not do. And so here we have the rich young man turned for the good. He is able to go from riches to rags. So here we go. St. Francis of Assisi, I'm going to tell you his life in three parts. The first part is the peacock. Because he was a young, strutting, boisterous man. He was like a peacock. He loved beauty. He was flamboyant. He was the center of attention. He was charismatic. He was outgoing. And he had fashion. He was tailored. What do they say? To the nines or something? I don't know. But he was tailored really well. Um, He was born in France. If you didn't know, Assisi. I'm sorry, not France. He was born in Italy. Uh, Assisi is in Italy. Um, In 1182. So almost a thousand years ago. He was actually named Giovanni, but his mother was French. So he had a lot of French influence in his life. So his, his dad and his friends all called him Little Frenchman, which is what Francis means. So Francis is actually his nickname. And he was born um, to, so, to a French mother, but his father, Italian, uh, inherited as the wife's dowry, inherited her family business, which was, she was, her family was cloth merchants. So he had access to France, and he would take Francis with him to France all the time, to his cloth merchant. Of course, Francis would be being raised up to take on the family business, which also meant that they were extremely wealthy. This family had money, and they dressed very well. Francis is said to be very short and very slight in appearance. There is hope. (laughs) He had very light skin with dark hair, dark eyes. His features were small and angular. 
and he was very charismatic, but not very attractive. Didn't quite say that he was ugly. The biographers just said he wasn't attractive. Um, as a teenager, he was flamboyant, outgoing, and loved being the center of attention. And of course, he dressed in fine silks and wools. But here's what made him unique, is that he would take patches from other fabrics and sew them onto his garments in a mismatched pattern, which gave him, yes, a very flamboyant appearance, but also a clownish appearance. And one can actually even say that Francis is the equivalent to your class clown. He's that to the town of Assisi. He was just the outgoing, boisterous, loud, laugh out loud kind of playing pranks too. He's a big prankster, a big partier. In fact, he led a boys club. I think today we would think of like a fraternity club or something. But it was a boys club where they would throw noisy, loud parties and play pranks on the citizens. It was very common in Italy in these days. Um, that was Francis. Um, but with all that said, he uh, loved beauty, loved beauty and hated the ugly. So much so that when he would see a leper in the street, he would hold his nose and turn around dramatically and walk the other way. When he was 19, he joined the militia. Lots of little wars were breaking on Italy at that time. Italy then was not unified like it is now. It was a bunch of separate city-states. So he joined the the Assisi militia at 19. There he witnessed the murder on battlefield of many peers, He was captured by the enemy, became a prisoner of war for a whole year. And then when he was released, he returned home a shell of what he used to be. He was depressed. He was erratic. He was irrational. And he was insecure. He would never go out with his friends anymore. He stayed in his room and played video games and watched Netflix. (laughs) Or whatever they did back then when you don't leave your room, right? He was not in a good way. Today, we would say that he had PTSD. But of course, that was not officially diagnosed in his case. And he was simply depressed is the way they said it back then. Um, So this lasted, this dark spell lasted for about a year when he decided to go outside the town, the the limits of Assisi to a church that was just off the border of Assisi. Um, and he actually wasn't going to the church. He was, he was, he was traveling. But when he saw this, this broken down building, uh, it was still a church being used, but it was in bad disrepair. Uh, he felt compelled to go into the church. The church was named San Dom, Dom, uh, Dom uh, hold on. It's, uh, uh, San uh, Damiano. San Damiano. Um, he steps into the San Damiano, and there's a crucifix, of course, at the, at the whole end of the church, and he falls prostrate before the crucifix and just begins weeping. He's lost. He's in darkness. He doesn't know what to do. He's weeping before this crucifix, and this is when his life changes. For he has a vision before the crucifix that the Christ on the cross, because uh, in Italy, Christ is on all the crosses, right? Um, the Christ there on the cross, his lips move and he speaks to Francis. And he says this to him, Francis, go and repair my house, which as you see is completely destroyed. So Francis has a change. He's no longer the strutting boisterous peacock. He's now Francis the penitent, which means he's very sorry. And he's now living a way of life which shows his remorse for his sin. 
So um, he has a moment. That moment there in the San Damiano was a moment of humility for him. And he wasn't the same now. He comes back into Assisi and he begins uh, doing all these traditional things that the church would do to show penance, to show repentance. Uh, one being asceticism. Uh, the biographers I read didn't really clarify what he did in his asceticism. They just said he uh, mortified his body, which could mean fasting. It could mean other things. Um, but one thing we know is that he started to dress in rags, no longer in fancy silks and his unique patches, but now in rags. He also became heavily invested in almsgiving. He gave to every single beggar who came his way. And when he had no more cash on hand, he would simply take the shirt off his back and give it to him. He also started anonymously sending furniture to the various churches in, around Assisi that needed to be repaired. Because the churches then just weren't, there was not a lot of funding to help them stay up to speed. So he anonymously was sending laborers and parts to help build them up. Then he also began to heavily pray. He spent long hours in his bedroom. This time not because he's depressed, but because he's pleading before God. He spent long hours in the woods alone, walking and praying. He also spent much of his time returning to San Damiano, contemplating the sufferings of Christ right there before the cross in which Christ had once spoken to him. And this is actually one of the prayers, um, whether it's the actual prayer or the essence of what he prayed, um, but his, apparently his future followers recorded this down, and his prayer went something like this at, during this time. Most high, glorious God, enlighten the darkness of my heart and give me true faith and perfect charity. Give me perception and knowledge, Lord, that I might carry out your holy and true command. So everyone has noticed the change in Francis. Um, his friends, there's one story where his friends come to him and say, why are you so happy? To which Francis answers, because I've recently been married. And then his friends say, whom have you been married to? And then Francis answers, to Lady Poverty. And of course, by this time, the friends are like, he's lost it. And they began gradually being concerned about him and not hanging out with him anymore. He's not the life of the party he used to be. He's withdrawing into himself to pray and be in the woods. And he's weeping before this cross in this old broken down church. Who is this guy? He's not one of us anymore. And his father also grows concerned because Francis is no longer interested in his father's business. And on top of that, he keeps spending all the wealth he receives and gives it away to the poor, which to his father seems like a waste of the money. Like, sure, help the poor, but don't give all of your money. Francis literally gives all his money and then his shirt when he doesn't have any more. He's giving it all away. So everyone's concerned for him. So dad locks him up in his room. Until the bishop can come. Because there is going to be an ecclesiastical, a church trial. And the bishop arrives. Of course, the bishop would be the, the priest of all the little churches in the area, right? So the priest or the bishop comes in and they have the trial. And the bishop urges Francis, Francis, if you can't stop wasting your family's wealth, then you need to disown it. To which Francis simply walks out of the room and then comes back in naked hands his clothes to his father, and back then your clothing would be distinguished to your family and your trade. It was symbolic. 
he hands his clothes to his father and he announces this. Until now, I have called Pietro di Bernardone my father. But because I have proposed to serve God, I return to him all the money on account of which he was so upset. And also all the clothing which was his. Wanting to say from now on, our father who art in heaven and not my father Pietro di Bernardone. And then he went straight into the forest and lived as a hermit for the next year until he was led to go and live in a hospital in Assisi that of all people ministered to lepers. Now Francis had to be up front with them and look at them and dress their wounds. And it is at that point that Francis says that he was transformed. The cross with Christ in the vision shifted him into repentance, but seeing the lepers, their beauty, their humanity, that's what changed him. And that's when he felt ready to go ahead with the call that I will live with God as my father. And so now we move to phase three, the peacock, the penitent, and now the preacher. So he's now 26 at this time. And so after serving in the hospital to lepers, he then moves to the church San Damiano, and there he lives, serves for the priests. He's not ordained, he's a layman, but he's serving alongside them, cleaning the church, and um, he's fixing the church. He's doing what Christ asked him to do. See my house in disrepair? Build it up, Francis. He's now building up this church, and when he runs out of supplies, he then goes into the town of Assisi and begs for support. Everything he gets, he receives from people who, that humbling move to have to go from a wealthy boy to begging on the street. And that's how he receives the, um, the materials needed to repair the church. And then, and then, one day, a boy from Assisi, I should say a young man from Assisi, read that if you can, a young man from Assisi shows up to the church and says, Francis, Francis, brother Francis, I am disposed in heart to wholly leave the world and to obey you in all things you shall command me. And Francis, <laughs> what? Whoa, um, I'm not comfortable with this, but sure, if you think you have anything to learn from me, live with me here in the church. We'll beg for alms and then we will build this church up. And then, not too long from then, another man comes and asks the same thing. Can I be your disciple, St. Francis? And he's getting really uncomfortable. He used to be this flamboyant leader and charismatic, but since his humility before Christ, he's really uncomfortable with the idea of giving commands. And so he looks for direction. So he and his two disciples go to a priest. And um, back then in Italy, they practiced something called the Sortes Biblicae which is um, basically Bible dice. Maybe you used to do this in your Bible reading time. I don't suggest it um, all the time, but um, it was like this. The priest would take a Bible and just randomly open it up and then put his finger on the page. And whatever his finger landed on, he would read that verse. That's, that's how they sought counsel when they needed direction from a priest. So Francis and his friends do this. And the priest reads these three. You can call that silly and ridiculous, but God used it in Francis's case because listen to these passages that came to him. Mark 10, verse 21. And Jesus, this is by the way, Mark's edition of our rich young ruler passage. Uh, and Jesus, looking at the young ruler, loved him and said to him, 
you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Second passage was Matthew 10, verse 7. Proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, so give without pay. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belt, no bag for your journey, or two tunics, or sandals, or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And then the third one was Luke 9, verse 23. Back then, by the way, Bibles were rare, so uh, this priest actually only had a New Testament, so that's why they're all in the Gospels. Um, Luke 9, 23, he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Those three passages would frame and shape Francis's life from then on. This is literally his code of conduct, even down to the way he dressed and they carried nothing with them. Francis will later become known for wearing a dark tunic, uh, like a very dark brown robe with nothing more than um, a rope tying it together. Francis went without sandals. Um, Of course, nowadays, the Franciscan uh, monks don't quite dress as extreme as he did, but that is the classic Francis dress. Um, Okay, so he's got disciples. He's now given direction. Okay, we should go toward voluntary poverty. Um, Others start joining. They're trickling. A few here, a few there. Francis is getting concerned because not only does he feel inadequate, but back then... You can't just do whatever you want to do in the name of Jesus. You have to get the church's blessing to do things. If you just went out and did your own hallelujah service out in the hills, they would call you heretics and round you up. Everything had to be done through the official church. So Francis is actually in danger because he's got this little miniature religious movement and there's no official blessing on it. So he, he walks right up to Rome and sees the Pope himself. Now, there's a series of ways he got to see the Pope. Coincidentally, the bishop who had um, watched over the trial between him and his father, uh, that same bishop was in Rome and recognized him. So he was part of the help in getting him to see the Pope. But Pope Innocent III was the man in charge then. And uh, when the story, now this sounds a bit like tradition, but nonetheless, this is how the story goes. When he came before Pope Innocent III, the Pope said, Ugh! You look like a pig and you should go wallow among pigs. To which Francis promptly leaves and sleeps in a sty that night and then returns to the Pope covered in mud. And the Pope is so impressed at his obedience that he then says, or Francis then says, Father, I have done as you ordered. Now will you do as I request? So the Pope then says, go with the Lord, brothers, him and his followers are there. Go with the Lord, brothers, and preach penance to all as the Lord will inspire you. And so now with the official Pope's blessing, this is an official movement within Christianity. They are known at first as the lesser brothers. They will, now you might know, you might have heard the, the Franciscans, um, that is uh, who they are today. Um, but they began as the lesser brothers And so they went, and the movement now with the blessing began to grow. Uh, Francis was granted an abandoned church to live in, and so they just set up little rooms in the church, and it became a monastery where they devoted three years to prayer and penance. So they did for three years. Now, then, after those three years, this is now 
1212, uh, they returned to Assisi, and finally they begin preaching. Of course, when Francis returns to Assisi, he is mocked and ridiculed to no end by his former friends. But then the people of Assisi begin to notice that Francis has a unique way with the depressed in the town, perhaps because he had gone through that himself. He was able to soothe them, to comfort them, to lead them. And then, and perhaps now and to a degree, uh, then, though they especially saw depression as uh, the presence of a demon within the person. Um, We wouldn't see it quite like that, but maybe sometimes depression could be the work of the devil. But uh, they saw, like, literally, if you're curing the depressed, you're, you're casting out demons. Like, you have God's authority over these things. And so people began, rumors began to spread that Francis is a holy man. Francis is, is, is declaring prophecies. Francis is a powerful guy. He has power over the depression and demons. And so people began to esteem him. And now people begin to join him. And within four years, he has nearly 800 followers. And within four years, he's so renowned that um, even in England, there's a transcript of a sermon that was preached where Francis is mentioned without introduction. So even in England, he was known. This movement is taking off. But all that to say that Francis is so uncomfortable with this whole situation He had a very hard time leading the movement because he did not want to be a leader. He felt unworthy to tell people what to do. He wanted to be told what to do so badly that he would tell his brothers to tell him what he should do because none of them would dare. And this, of course, brought tension. uh, And eventually Francis, in another four years, resigned from leading the lesser brothers Of course, though, he can't just step away and not have people still listen and follow him, which still happened. But he, nonetheless, was no longer the official leader. And um, that's essentially how his life goes. Now, there's a couple of noticeable events, and one of which is, you may not, I did not know this, that he invented the nativity scene. In, In 1223 this is three years after he'd resigned, he and some of the brothers went to the town of Grecio where they wanted to celebrate Christmas. And Francis so wanted to experience what the birth of Christ was like that he staged a nativity scene. He, he built um, a manger. He put a doll in there. He brought live animals and he had all the brothers hold candles that so looked like the, angel, the angelic host around. And Um, He held a Christmas service. Francis led it there with scripture readings and prayers and all. That was the origin of the nativity scene. Um, In the next year, he received, I don't know if you've ever heard of this. It's very unusual, but he received what Catholics call the stigmata. The stigmata is where someone receives on their body the wounds of Christ. So Francis, it's said that he was fasting for 40 days and praying Um, and basically just contemplating the sufferings of Christ. Francis, if you can't tell, he really wanted to press into what Christ experienced. He wanted to press into his birth, as you just heard. He wanted to press into the cross. And so he spent 40 days just weeping before the cross and contemplating Christ's suffering for him when a seraph comes and touches his hands, his feet, and his side. And then um, the account says from his first biographer that he had flesh sticking out of his hands as though it were a nail. And his side bled so continuously that it would often soak through all his tunics. Um, So Francis, that's called the stigmata. 
Um, uh, Paul said he bore in his body the wounds of Christ. We don't know exactly what Paul meant by that, but that's what people would say is that can happen. Paul bore it, Francis bore it, and a few very rare others bore the same marks of Christ. Um, he was well known for being good with animals. Perhaps this is what most people know about Francis. Uh, when you go to my grandmother's house, she has a beautiful garden, and she has at least, I think, like three little figurines of Francis around her garden. Um, because Francis is, he's the saint of animals and nature. Uh, Francis, he, he received this reputation because he would spend long periods of prayer walks to the woods. But then he, he got to know creation so well, he called animals brothers and sisters and then he would go back to the brothers and start to nickname them after animals. Oh, brother wolf, you eat too much. You're a glutton. And oh, chipmunk, you're a chatterbox. And, you know, whatever. He would name them animal names. Uh, he was seen in the road kneeling down to pick up worms when it rained, lest travelers crush the worms. Someone once caught a fish for him, and then he grabbed it and threw it back because he couldn't bear to see it be killed for his sake. Things like that. Like, Francis was a bit of a nature nut. <laughs> um, uh, oh, yeah, then the sparrows. He loved the sparrows most of all. He would go out to the sparrows and preach to them. And he would, he would simply hold up his hands and say, you've been talking long enough now. It's my turn. Calm, calm, calm down until I finish preaching to you. And then they would, according to the witnesses, the sparrows would actually be silent and still while Francis preached until he finished. And when he would do so, those who observed recognized that they were in the presence of a holy man and tried to touch his robe. Things like that, right? Francis was gaining all these reputations. But here is one of the most amazing uh, nature stories. And this one sounds very legendary, but who knows? Because God gave Adam and Eve control over creation. And part of um, church history, like old church's belief, is that when one becomes so close to Christ, they actually regain that rule over creation, that's, that's the way some old church writers have talked about it. Uh, but this is, this, is, this is how the story goes. That uh, in one village, there was a wolf eating some of their animals and even some of the children. And they were desperate to get rid of this wolf. But Francis couldn't bear to see the wolf be killed. So Francis goes out and finds this big bad beast and says, Oh, brother wolf, will you please stop killing? And then the wolf said to him, Sure, I will stop killing and so then the two of them walk into the town together and Francis announces, this wolf has agreed to stop eating your, your children and animals if you will feed him. And everyone lived happily ever after. But of course he eventually dies. He dies in his 40s. He became blind, unable to walk, um, very hard for him to eat and swallow food. Um, and so it was very clear when his death was coming. The doctors predicted his death within a week. So he's on his deathbed. People know it's coming. And rumor begins to ripple from first from his followers and then to the whole town of Assisi and beyond before he died that he's a saint. Francis is a saint. And then he, his last words are recorded to be, I have done my duty. Now may Christ let you know yours. Welcome, Sister Death. Two years later, Pope Gregory IX officially made Francis a saint. And uh, usually their feast day is on the day of their death, but his was put to October 4th. Oh, he died October 3rd, by the way. 
Uh, his feast day is October 4th. And you may have recognized or heard of this or seen this, but around that day, you'll see churches having pets coming to their churches because the priests will bless the pets of everyone at their home uh, because France, Francis was the, you know, he was good with nature. So that's how they celebrate St. Francis Day. Uh, I know that because my grandma brings her turtle to her church. Um, oh, and I believe the uh, Episcopalian Church did that this year. I think I had heard that. So, yeah, so certain traditions celebrate that. Um, well, that's St. Francis's life. Some of us might say, why does it matter? Because... As I've shared with you guys before, I am ashamed that I don't know much, much, much of my family. And I'm I'm glad to say I'm getting to know some of them. Because what tremendous examples and heroes, what a great cloud of witnesses we have around us. Not just in the Bible, but in the 2,000 years leading up to our day. And we can learn from them. They're examples to us of what life can look like in our context. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, Paul tells the Corinthians, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul was unashamed of saying, I am following Christ and you better imitate me in that. And when the church in the past, has, when the church looks back in the past and says, this person lived a godly uh, example for us, that's what it means when they saint someone is this person is a great example of following Christ. Then we should pay attention. Now, we're not called to do everything that they do. We all have our calls and contexts. But from St. Francis, I believe that we can learn how to restore the brokenness in our world. He was called to rebuild churches and people. And this he did. Through his poverty, he was able to minister to the poor through his poverty, he was able to use his resources to help them and to rebuild churches. Um, but living like Francis can be daunting, can't it? Like, uh, I'm not giving up everything and living with a tunic and begging for my bread. Like, that is just extreme. I don't know if how anyone can do that. Uh, but Francis, here's what we need to understand and where we need to start. Francis lived generously because he lived simply. He lived generously because he lived simply. And to me, Francis is the example of a Christian who was able to do everything for Christ well because he was not hindered or burdened or slowed down by the needs and cares of this world that we often strap to ourselves. Yes, there are needs, but some of our needs are because we've made choices that have come with needs. Here's, I want to read to you two old writings, one from a saint, one from just an old Christian. Uh, St. John Chrysostom says this. He's fourth century, the Charles Spurgeon before Charles Spurgeon. Why do you bear, uh, he says this, why do you bury the soul alive? Let us make the soul herself more clear-sighted, lest we make her and let us make her wing light, her bonds looser. And in the context, he's talking about people who are living pampered, luxurious lives. Why are we burying the soul alive? Let's let her, her wings flap. Let's loose her bonds. 
very short way of saying what Tertullian said, second century. Tertullian wrote um, about debates between pagans and Christians. The pagans were saying, Christians got, the Christian's God is not real because look how many of them are poor. To which Tertullian's Christian answered this. I now come to the accusation that most of us are said to be poor. That is not to our shame. It is to our great credit. Men's characters are strengthened by stringent circumstances, just as they are dissipated by luxurious living. Besides, can a man be poor if he is free from want? If he does not covet the belongings of others, if he is rich in the possessions of God? Rather, he is poor who possesses much, but still craves for more. And so, it is that when a man walks along a road, the lighter he travels, the happier he is. Equally, on this journey of life, a man is more blessed if he does not pant beneath a burden of riches, but lightens his load by poverty. Nevertheless, we would ask God, so, okay, you can hear that, by the way, and say, like, oh, Francis and all these guys, poverty is a virtue. Just be poor and you're more holy. Not exactly what they're saying. And he clarifies this here. So Tertullian's Christian continues and says, nevertheless, we would ask God for material goods if we considered them to be of use. Without a doubt, he to whom the whole world belongs would be able to concede us a portion but we prefer to hold possessions in contempt rather than to hoard them. It is rather innocence that is our aspiration. It is rather patience that is our entreaty. Our preference is goodness, not extravagance. What a well-stated position on the Christian view of money and possessions. Our goal is to simply travel light. Lightness of soul is what we want. To be light before God. So that when others need something, we don't have to unbury ourselves from a mountain of it. Gotta hold on to all this. Maybe I'll give you just a penny. Because the man who's holding on to so much is not able to live open-handed. And this is why we see so many heroic martyrs in the early church. is because they were able to live with so little. It's like, what what else are you going to take from me? My life? That's all I have left. Take it. But when we're burdened and strapped by it, but I possess this and I have this legacy and I'm in the middle of that and I got these people and blah, 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 blah. We don't want to give up our life because it means giving up all of that with it. Traveling light is what we want because possessions and pleasures burden our souls and make us dull and heavy. (laughs) The more that we carry of the material, the less that we care of the spiritual. For if we're dull and heavy and weighed down with stuff, how else do you think you're going to be active for Christ? How else do you think you're going to wrestle with the spiritual warfare that Paul talks about in chapter 6 of Ephesians? How else do you think that you're going to run your race with endurance if you're lugging your house? Good luck. That's not to say you shouldn't own a house. That's not what I'm saying. But your house can become a ball and chain. It can. We must beware. So we want to travel light, but how do we do that? Well, here's a few ways, three ways to travel light. Uh, I'm so simplifying. Like you say so much on this. 
but I, I, I dri- dri- was it? I don't know. I narrowed it down to three. Buy what you need, not what you want. What you need, not what you want. Because um, so, sometimes we think we need something, but what we really want is prestige and pleasure. Is that really helping you run your race? Buy what you need, not what you want. That's not to say you can never enjoy something, but it's knowing the boundaries and when you're just living a life of I want all this and when you're living a life a life of I need all this. Um, here's how St. Basil the Great or St. Basil the Great put it in the fourth century. I'm really tempted to do him next week. If each one, I just like his name and everything I've written of him is just amazing. I don't know why Basil is just a cool name. Um, it sounds cooler too if you say Basil, but whatever. If each one would take, he, he said this, if each one would take that which is sufficient for one's needs, leaving what is in excess to those in distress, no one would be rich and no one poor. Or put this another way, traveling light means having the right priority. And Jesus said in Matthew 6 verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. What does that mean? If my priority is right and I'm living for the kingdom of God, the things I need will be added to me. I don't have to worry about what I want. I seek the kingdom. And this is also to say, by the way, that it doesn't make you virtuous or saint-like to just go out and start throwing things at people and giving stuff away. That's the wrong path. Jesus does not say, seek poverty and all these things will be added to you. He doesn't say, seek these certain deeds. He says, seek first the kingdom. Now, seeking the kingdom may lead you and I to give this up or that up or to help this person or that person. But the goal is to seek the kingdom and then everything will be added to us. Francis sought first the kingdom. He was then led to live a life of poverty as he did. And his needs were clearly added unto him and more some. Um, We also need humility to know what we need. Pride tells me what I want. Only humility can tell me what I need. And humility only comes when we recognize that we're sinners like St. Francis, and we continually mourn our sins and seek the forgiveness of Christ. Recognizing his suffering, what he did for me, it makes, if we take this seriously, it makes you faint at the idea of feeding yourself even when we're really in that rare moment of understanding who we are before God, I, I, the rare moments I get that moment, I, I realize like, man, who am I to even feed myself? Like, I am dust and ashes before this God. Francis seems to have understood that like all his life. Uh, so confessing our sins, recognizing them, but also I found Thanksgiving helps me not be entitled. The, the practice of giving thanks every day or gratitude is sort of the buzzword today. Um, By doing that, I've noticed that it lightens my soul because I recognize that this isn't all mine because I achieved it. It's not all mine to hold on to. It was given to me, which means I get to give it back and travel light. I've been saying this to people lately because a lot of discussions have happened, but um, like about this church, I didn't seek this church. Like I didn't strive to gain this church and I got to strive to maintain it. Like it got to a point, Pastor Mike asked me for years if I would take it on. And I just, eh, I kind of like just being second pastor and teaching and you worry about all the big stuff. Um, until it just became evident to Brittany and I that we are not helping this fellowship by keeping that position. Because Pastor Mike was less and less present. And it was like, well, either we care for this church or we don't. And so 
like God put it in my lap. God said, here, have it. And so what I get to do is I get to tell him every day <laughs> all the problems and the burdens and the stresses and the who knows where, like, if we're gonna, if we're gonna grow or not, like, God, it's your, you gave it to me, I'm giving it back. It was yours to begin with. And that is so freeing. It is so freeing to know that it's not writing on how well I preached the week before or that Brandon should cut off his ponytail because it's just not manly enough. Like, none of it rides on any of that. It rides on Christ's shoulders. It's his church. And so Thanksgiving, thank you for giving me this church. I give it back to you. Thank you for my clothing. I give it back to you. Thank you for my house. I give it back to you. Thank you for my family. I give them back to you. Every part of your life down to the birds singing outside. When we live in this kind of thankfulness and gratitude, we lighten our souls because nothing is of us or for us or through us. It is all from God. That's how you travel with the light soul. That's also what will teach you the difference between what you need and what you want. Second, eliminate what you need to need. It's another way of saying your addictions, the things that you're too attached to, the things you think you need to need. You might know what those are right now as I say it. What can you not do without Not because you'll die, but because you will psychologically have a heart attack and go into depression mode. What do you think that you need to need? Uh, Here's how you know what it is. Practice simple asceticism. I'm not asking this to be super like ascetics where I think one of my friends said laying on cactuses and stuff. You don't have to do that. But like just on a daily basis, deprive yourself of something and alternate it. Deprive yourself from the news. Deprive yourself from your phone. Deprive yourself from food. Deprive yourself from comforts, maybe heat. (laughs) this time of year deprive yourself from something not because this is my salvation but because this will show me the things i need to need because you'll notice if there are certain things you give up and then you have this certain reaction to it that's my i need that i'm entitled to that whoa red flag watch out you don't want to be like that So when the cable doesn't work or the Wi-Fi doesn't work and you are livid and you're tempted to go do something really bad to get it to work, like steal your neighbors or something, reroute their, you've got a problem. And this says, give this up, Brandon, give it up. You are burdened by this. This possession possesses you. So buy what you need, eliminate what you need to need. And then third, give to others what they need. I confess I'm awful at this. According to one personality type finder, I am a researcher. I'm an observer. And my vice is avarice, which is a really fancy old-fashioned way of saying greed. I'm not necessarily greedy with stuff. I, I typically just, I, I, I am kind of, yes, but I'm very greedy with my time and my energy and my peace and quiet. Um, I need a lot of growth here. Like, God has shown me, taught me so much about prayer and fasting the last two years. But almsgiving, helping others, I don't know. God, you know I don't do others well. I do words on page very well. I don't do people speaking words. And I, that's hard for me. I need to grow here. I I will guess that most of us do. 
I mean, if you're reading your Bible with a warm cup of coffee and a blanket over you and by the fire, like it's not that hard to get into that mode. But when you got to help somebody else and give that blanket up, that's a little harder. We should start small and give what we can, not as we should. In other words, don't think, I got to be St. Francis tomorrow. (laughs) You're going to have a hard time. But if we start with the little things, I'm going to deprive myself of desserts for a little while, or just every now and then. I'm not going to be entitled to this. Um, I'm going to, you know, I really like this coat, but I have like 15. I'm going to give this to someone that I'll just give this to someone. It can be someone you like. It doesn't matter. You just start small. And then soon you might start giving them to strangers. Now, that's my hope, right? I, I'm not there. I'm, I'm looking forward to saying, how can I be generous in small things so that I can live more generously in the big things? So here's three. I, I read, by the way, I Googled um, church fathers on possessions, and everything I read put me in such a depressed, humbled spirit of, I am a sinner. Because their attitude to possessions is so far from mine. So I would just, I narrowed this down to three. St. Basil the Great again said this, the bread in your cupboard belongs to the hungry man. The coat hanging in your closet belongs to the man who needs it. The shoes rotting in your closet belong to the man who has no shoes. The money which you put into the bank belongs to the poor. You do wrong to everyone you could help, but fail to help. The Didache, it was a discipleship manual from the first century, says this. Share everything with your brother. Do not say it is private property. If you share what is everlasting, you should be that much more willing to share things which do not last. So if I share heaven with you, and you need something that I have? Can't I share that? That's what he's saying. That's a material thing. It's not a big deal. We share heaven together. And then St. John Chrysostom again. When you are weary of praying and do not receive, consider how often you have heard a poor man calling and have not listened to him. Remember that next time you're praying and God doesn't seem to be answering your prayers. Ouch. Here's my closing question sort of like a chicken and the egg question. You don't have to have a right or wrong answer to it. Does generosity bless the receiver or does it unburden the giver? Or both? All glory and honor and praise to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Lord, have mercy on us now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen.